We're in Romans chapter 15 tonight and our rapidly moving study through Romans. When a man is wrapped up in himself, he makes a very small package. And yet, our culture, our society, governed by sinful men, emphasizes being wrapped up in oneself. What about me, man? What about my needs? What about my rights? Those are frequently said sentiments. The other day I was flying somewhere, going somewhere, and I was getting on an airplane, and in the airport the uh, gal behind the desk said, if you are, need to pre-board or you have assigned seats with these numbers, please come to the front. So I had the assigned seat. I had an upgrade certificate, so I was like in the first or second row. And so I walked up to the front. Well, as I did, I saw out of the corner of my eye somebody moving his way through the crowd, grabbed my arm, my T-shirt, and tugged my T-shirt hard, saying, there's others waiting in this line besides you. I said, well, sir, I know that, but he called my number, and I'm supposed to board, and, well, you'll get there soon enough. And uh, made a big issue of wanting to get on the airplane that, as far as I knew, his seat would land probably around the same time my seat would. <laughs> but I was glad to let him go first if that was a big issue. Ever since the Garden of Eden, that's where it all began, when the serpent, the devil, said to Eve, go ahead, man, have this fruit. Because in the day that you do it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The idea of man becoming his or her own God. Max Lucado writes, The snake pulled back the curtain to the throne room and invited Eve to take a seat. Put on the crown, pick up the scepter, put on the cape, See how it feels to have power. See how it feels to have a name. See how it feels to be in control. Eve swallowed the hook. The temptation to be like God eclipsed her view of God. At the fall of man, Satan perverted the very purpose of God, which was to create man in his own image and to tempt men and woman, women from that time on to make God in his or her own image. That's what the fall did. The fall made us anthropocentric, man-centered. So we focus, what about me? What about my needs? That has become the center of our culture, of all cultures, ever since that day. It's sort of uh, reflected, I think, in, in the media of our society. If you notice that, first it was Life magazine. Then the circle got constricted a little bit to a people. From life to just people. And then the circle got tightened up a bit and uh, it's us magazine, which excludes them, of course. It's just us. And then uh, after that, self was the hit. Self magazine. And I'm sure that in our narcissistic society, eventually there's just going to be me. Unfortunately, we have been conditioned by a culture that believes this to view church the same way. To view church through the lens of what's in it for me. What about my needs? Like going shopping for an item. 
looking and seeing what items are on the box. Ooh, that's what I like. Ooh, that's what I don't like. I'll take this one. And it becomes an experience for a great number of people in this country to go church shopping besides church hopping. Imagine how that would sound to the early church in Jerusalem. Imagine people in the early church walking up to the Jerusalem. There was only one. But going up and saying, well, what kind of music do they play? How long does Peter preach anyway? I don't know if this is really the kind of church for me or not. It would sound bizarre. Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Words that are not likely preached in many pulpits today. In other words, the, the church, God's people, are to be, and the community of the church, is to be, in a sense, the antithesis of all that our culture is. Of all that our culture says is important when we gather together as a church, it's not to be anthropocentric. It's not to be man-centered. It's to be theocentric, God-centered. It's not about us. It's about God and glorifying God. And so that's why I believe that a seeker-sensitive approach to doing church is wrong. That is, let's have a group of programs that make uh, the unbeliever or the person who is turned off to God and church feel very comfortable in what we present to them. I feel it's, it's wrong because we're conditioning people to make themselves the focus of the gathering rather than God. And that's wrong to do that. G.K. Chesterton, an author that I've admired, said, We do not want a church that will move with the world we want a church that will move the world. Amen? We want a church that sets the pace. Instead of, well, everybody likes. Well, that's not what we're about. We're about what God likes. And we grow up the church based on that. And the only way to do that is to make ourselves and our gatherings, our groups, our churches, theocentric, God-centered. Now, I've been doing a lot of examination personally on this lately bringing this up. And, you know, I'm always reminded when I read the Bible of one basic truth, is that I'm owned. I don't own myself anymore, right? We're, we're owned by God. Jesus paid for us with his blood at the cross. We were bought back to God. And that's a heavy price tag. We are not our own. When you said yes to Jesus Christ, you turned over the pink slip to him. And you said, you're in charge now. Or as 1 Corinthians 6 puts it, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, that you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Now, I know we're in Romans 15, and we're going to get there. It's all about this. But I, I, I'm drawing a foundation here for our study tonight. Question. How did this thinking that we mentioned, this seeker-sensitive, man-centered group of church meetings, how did it all come about? Simply, the answer is, the church began to respond to the world, began to respond to what our culture said is important. We want to find out what people like, and we'll give them what they like. That's the idea. Um, example. This kind of says it all, I think. Here's a, a statistic. 63% of Americans, 
This is just Americans in general, American culture. That's three out of five Americans. Say the main purpose of life is enjoyment and personal fulfillment. Okay, that's our culture. We expect our culture to say that. It's kind of founded on that. Three out of five say that's the main purpose of life, personal satisfaction. Fifty percent of those who say they are born-again Christians say that life's purpose is enjoyment and self-satisfaction. So whenever you have a group that calls themselves the church that tries to be like the world outside the church, where our focus is to be hep rather than holy, that's what you have, a very watered-down gospel, very watered-down truth. Also, what has happened is the church notices something about the culture. The church looks outside and says, golly, you know, the world doesn't like church. Duh, duh. Well, so we got to do something about that. we got to get them to like church. Because we all, I grew up not liking it. Of course, I wasn't saved when I didn't like it either. George Barna writes, Almost every measure of religious behavior we have available is currently at or near its low point for the past decade. That includes church attendance. More baby busters are being added to the adult population each year. More than other generations, busters are prone to abandon the Christian faith in favor of other religious faiths. There is a generation greatly interested in spiritual development, but not necessarily inclined to embrace Christianity as their natural faith. So the church starts looking at the culture saying, hmm, so they're leaving in droves, so they don't like what we have to offer. Well, what can we do to keep them or what can we do to get them? Once you start thinking that way, you open a Pandora's box to eventually setting aside truth or hiding the truth. I've been in churches where I was the only one attending. I attended on a service. I was the only one in the entire building with a Bible. Nobody had a Bible. Why? They didn't read them. It wasn't important. Jesus' name wasn't mentioned that much. Worshiping God wasn't that, oh, well, people may not you know, feel a little uncomfortable with that. I think you're supposed to feel a little uncomfortable with it if you're not walking with God. I did when I was first exposed to it, and though I felt uncomfortable being around authentic Christians, they had something I wanted. They had something I wanted. Now, in chapter 15, Paul is continuing speaking about the will of God ever since chapter 12. And he speaks about the, the nature of true believers in fellowship with each other, getting along with each other. That's sort of a problem. Here's, here's the church. You've got Jews on one hand. You've got Gentiles with all sorts of varieties of beliefs. And they're now saved. And they're now together in one group called the church. Some are strong and others are weak by Paul's own description in chapter 14 and 15. The strong Christians are more lenient, they're less legalistic. The weak Christians are uh, strict in their parameters, more legalistic. They wor worry about what days to worship, what things you can and cannot eat. And so because of that, he speaks to the strong in chapter 15 about bearing, putting up with, you might say, putting up with the weaker brother or sister for the sake of unity in the church. 
And uh, in chapter 14, by way of just a, a quick review, his bottom line thing is this. Despite all the minimal differences we may have, and I say minimal, non-essential differences, despite the fact that one says Saturday is important, one says Sunday is important, uh, some go kosher, some don't care. Because of the differences, though they are minimal, what is most important is that we worship the same Lord, he says. We're going to be under the same judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, and we have the same motivation. If you're a true believer, but you're hung up on this or that or you're not, you're doing it, hopefully, because you want to please God in all things. So you have the same motivation, the same Lord, the same future. Now we get into chapter 15, and he continues that by saying, We who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you all, he was from the south, with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to cover tonight, by the grace of God, those verses. And we're going to look at it this way. Five marks of true fellowship. Five marks of an authentic church, of what church is about. When Christians get together, whether they're weak, whether they're strong, and they get together, and that's called the body of Christ, there's five marks of a true fellowship. And it's important that we cover this because... We need to be about not giving people what they think they want, but what they need desperately, which is truth. People need to hear the truth. You will hear, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so we have to give them the truth of God. Otherwise, we make the customer, so to speak. That's what church has become, sort of a marketing endeavor. We make the customer sovereign rather than God sovereign. And then, if we do that, we'll, we'll set up church and the leadership, the pastor, the deacons, the elders, the people who do Sunday school, etc., will be worried about, well, I like that message, well, I didn't like that message. Well, it's not really about what you or I like. It's about what the Word of God says. 
It's about uncovering the truth of the scripture and having it confront our lives, whether it's pleasant or not, whether it takes a week to go through Romans or 32 weeks so far. It's about confronting God's truth and having it sink into our lives and having him change us. So first mark is love. First mark is love. Verse 1. We then who are strong. So if you think that you're one of the strong ones, then take note to this one. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Remember who the strong is. The strong refers to those people who have a a broader, more biblical understanding of what Christian freedom is all about. They would say, I don't care if I eat meat that's been sacrificed to a pagan idol because the pagan idol is nothing. There's only one true God, and so it's nourishment. I don't care about it. But I'm to bear with the scruples of the weak. There may be some who have scruples or convictions is the idea behind the word scruples. A conviction that, hey, you know, if you eat this meat, it's wrong. Or if you worship on this day, it's wrong. So they may be wrong in their narrow understanding, and I may be right in my broad, more biblical understanding, but if I'm mature, I'm to bear or to put up with the scruples of the weak. I think sometimes there creeps in this tendency among some of us to have a a condescending attitude that would say, well, you know, I'm a little more mature in the Christian faith, thus I need to be around more mature people like me. Oh, really? Well, if you're that mature, then you ought to be helping those who are not mature get mature. That's what you ought to be doing, hanging around those who are weak and making them strong. Bearing with the scruples of the weak. Letting love flow out of you like it would out of no one else. That is maturity. The word bear is bastazo, to carry a burden. Now think about that for a minute. You're growing in Christ. You're becoming strong. You have a broad, wide understanding of liberty. And so you're a mature, strong Christian according to Paul's definition. That means you have to put up with You have to carry the burden of those weak brothers and sisters. And that's a very descriptive phrase, I think. Because sometimes it feels like, gosh, I'm just putting up with them. They're so hard to put up with. That's the idea. It's not easy putting up with the narrow-minded and the weak. But if you're more mature, love's got to come from someone. And if it's not coming from the narrow-minded, divisive person, let it come from you. Because you're more mature. So in practical terms... If you think it's okay to listen to loud Christian rock and roll music, but you invite a sensitive saint over to your house who would think that certain radio stations and certain of those Christian quote-unquote groups are wrong to listen to, don't crank the stereo up. Hey, listen to this. (laughs) That's not love. Or if they can't eat meat, maybe they're a vegetarian and they see something even spiritually wrong with it. I've met people who thought it's spiritually wrong to eat certain kinds of food. Don't smack your lips with a big burger hanging out. (laughs) The first mark is the mark of love when there is fellowship. The rule to follow, the rule to practice, that sort of sums this up nicely, is Philippians chapter 2, 
verse 3 and 4. You're familiar with it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind consider others better than yourselves. Let each of you look out not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That's why church can never be, what did I get out of it? Well, what did I put into it? Now, that doesn't mean that every time you come to a Bible study, you can put something into it, because right now you are receiving. It's about nourishment right now. But then you find opportunities, whether in home fellowships or on the mission field or in discipleship groups that go on, and there are so many that go on here. I'm told we have no more rooms available for ministries on any night of the week because there's stuff going on that are just encouraging. Find those and plug into them and bring maturity. 1 Corinthians 9 is another text that comes to mind. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant that I might win the more to the weak. I became as weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men if by all means I might save some. That's love. You know, some people say, well, love is blind. Oh, no, it's not. Love has its eyes wide open and is well aware of all the flaws, falterings, sins, weaknesses, but covers them up, deals with them, helps bring maturity, bears up, puts up with. And, and what, a, what an important thing this is when it comes to our witness to the world, right? I've heard the text misquoted that all men shall know that you're my disciples by the love that you have. It's not what it says. The world or all men shall know that you're Christ's disciples by the love you have for one another in the church. It's when the world can look at the church and say, now there's a group of people. They authentically love each other. They're not dividing. They're not bickering. They love. They serve. They say, I want that. I want that kind of community that's not hepper than thou, but there's a holiness about them. There's a love about them. You see, we're never going to win the lost by being Christian cannibals, eating each other up all the time, being right. You know, Mark Twain, brilliant author and intellect for that matter, was turned off, he said, to the Christian faith by examples that he had seen in church leadership, elders and deacons in churches who were slave owners and used the Bible to justify owning slaves and abuse the slaves they owned. Filthy talking during the week said they were Christians. Of course, they're not only Christians, but leaders. Filthy talking, lewd conversations, dishonest practices, and he said, I want no part of it because of what he had seen. And that kind of hypocrisy and lack of love between a person and a slave. Now, he said he saw genuine love in for Jesus Christ even, in his wife and in his mother, but in church leadership, he didn't see it. And uh, so, we who are strong ought to bear the scruples or the convictions of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's an important, you may want to underline that, don't please yourself. Because a mark of Satan's kingdom is that you live to please yourself. You prove that you live for the devil's world when your whole life is revolved around living to please yourself. You show that you belong to God's kingdom by the fact that you're not on the throne anymore. God is. And therefore, you love. 
and you please others. Verse 2 continues that thought. Let each of us please his neighbor for good, leading to edification. Pleasing your neighbor. Now, you may get confused at this point. Because uh, there is a sense where pleasing others is seen as wrong in the Bible. And we're warned against that. In fact, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or God? Am I trying to please men? Question mark. He answers it. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. So there's one sense where being a man pleaser is wrong because being a man pleaser originates from the fear of man, which brings a snare. But being a neighbor pleaser, let's just call it that, pleasing his neighbor for good, is something that originates from having the fear of God, a healthy respect for God. And because I want to please the Lord, I want to please those who belong to the Lord and make sure they're edified. When you're a man pleaser, in the wrong sense of the word, Galatians 1.10, it leads to flattery. Oh, you're so wonderful. You just say things just to win their approval. You don't really mean it. You're just doing whatever you can. One leads to flattery. But pleasing your neighbor in the right sense, the Romans 15 sense, leads to edification, it says. Edification. And remember, from our last couple studies, this is the third principle in the gray areas, right? We want to know, well, can I do this or can I not do this as a believer to glorify Jesus Christ? The third principle we gave you is the principle of edification, where Paul said, all things are lawful, but all things do not edify or build up the body of Christ. So, pleasing others for the sake of edifying or growing them up, building them up in the faith. Maybe we should just stop and apply that to marriages. I mean, let's just even take it out of the church. That's the context. But let's take it to just marriages within the church. Let's just narrow it there. Do you live to please your mate? Now, often marriages start that way. Most marriages do. But pretty soon, it disintegrates, right? It's very easy to do that, right? Where not only are you not pleasing your mate, you're avidly not trying to please your mate. Oh, if I know he likes that, I'm not going to do that. He used to buy her flowers. Doesn't buy her flowers. All he thinks about is, what kind of flowers would you like at your funeral, honey? (laughs) He used to open the door for her. Now he likes to close it on her foot. You know, things have changed in their relationship. He's, He's not just not pleasing. He's trying not to please. Verse 3 is the example of the first mark, which is love, and that's Jesus Christ is the example. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting Psalm 69, verse 9. There's the example. There's the example. It's very popular to wear the bracelets. What would Jesus do? I'll tell you what he would do. Don't have to even ask the question. He would love supremely. His life would be given out for self-sacrificing of other people. That's what he was all about. For he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
to give his life as a ransom for many. Selfless love. Jesus also said, I always do those things that please the Father. So he's the example. Christ didn't come to please himself. And think of all the examples we could think of in our Lord's life. His birth, so humble, born into the lower classes of society, the poorest of the poor in Israel, so that anybody could come to him. If he was born in the wealthy, aristocratic circles of Rome, all the poor peasants of Galilee would feel, I can't approach this guy. But now anybody can come to him unless you're too prideful. Not only that, but he was lost at 12 years of age in the temple. He was, remember, talking to the doctors. Not to dishonor his parents, but he said, I must be about my father's business. It was all about my father's will. Then around Galilee, he would stay late into the evening, and he would teach, and he would give himself to the crowds. And then when they were hungry, he fed the 5,000, thinking of others. At the last supper, he washed the disciples' feet, though he was the one suffering. He became the servant. And then the ultimate demonstration of self-sacrificing love is what? The cross. The cross is. And that's the allusion to the quote that Paul gives in this verse, Psalm 69. The reproaches of you fell upon me. As Jesus took the sin of the world placed on him by the Father. And then think of Jesus on the cross. Hanging between two thieves, bleeding, God incarnate. And he didn't say, what about me, man? What about my needs? His first words were, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. His second words to the thief who showed signs of repentance, today you'll be with me in paradise, ministering to him. And then he looked down to his mother and he said, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The Son of God dying for our sins on the cross, that final, ultimate transaction of love. And he's thinking about honoring his mom. His whole life was poured out in self-sacrificial love. Now, if it wasn't, if Jesus' life was all about his own comfort, his own desires, and what 63% of Americans say is the whole reason for living. If that was Jesus' philosophy, the cross is out of the picture, right? He's not going to come down from heaven to earth and go through that stuff. But remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as this theanthropic, unique Son of God, fully God but fully man, is suffering, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he resigned and said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. His whole life was fueled and motivated by that one aim. I love God. I serve God. I please God. So, whenever we crush the bread of communion between our teeth and drink the fruit of the vine... It's the testimony of a man, God-man, who lived to not please himself. That's the first mark, then, the mark of love. We who are strong should put up with, carry the burden of the weak. Second mark of Christian fellowship is a study of the Scriptures, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. 
I love that verse. I've just got to say that, I probably say this a lot to you, but this is one of my favorite verses. It just says so much in it. And it says that the, one of the marks of true Christian fellowship is a love for the word and study of the scriptures. Question. What scriptures was Paul referring to? The Old Testament. At this point, though it included the New Testament, when he said even to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, instruction in righteousness, etc. Though it included some New Testament writings, primarily it referred to the Old Testament. I find that very interesting. The Old Testament. The very thing that few Christians even read was considered at that time, and Paul taught from it exclusively, the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this verse is important because it gives us the other side of the coin of something Paul has already spoken about. Many chapters so far, Paul has been belaboring a point that we are not bound by Old Testament rules and regulations, in other words, dietary ceremonial regulations, the new covenant believer is not bound to them. And while that is true, and we're not bound by any Old Testament covenant, old covenant, or ceremonial rules and regulations, all scripture, even in the Old Testament, has principles for our learning. We can learn valuable lessons and principles from any portion of the Bible. That's why we teach all the way through the Bible. That's why after we're done with Romans, we think it's as important to go through the book of Judges. That'll be our next book. And we take it all the way through the Bible. Because there's examples in the Old Testament of how God deals with people. We want to look at that. We want to see the differences from the old and the new, but take that broad principle of God relating to man and see how it applies to our life. So, Second mark of Christian fellowship, the study of the scriptures. And do you know, while churches today are turning from studying of the scriptures, and while people today don't have an appetite to read the Bible, the early church did. And so if we ever say, we've got to get back to the New Testament church, mark high on your list, studying the scriptures. Because Acts 2.42 says, they devoted themselves constantly, number one, to the apostles' doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine. You know what the Apostles' Doctrine was? It was the doctrine taught by the Apostles. You know what Bible the Apostles used to do it? The Old Testament. They were teaching them what Jesus did, what Jesus said. He was the fulfillment of the law. But as you read the New Testament, there are so many quotes of Old Testament scriptures. The Apostles' Doctrine. I know, I, I hear uh, perhaps one or two thinking well, uh, I'm not into doctrine. Doctrine isn't all that important to me. I'm just into Jesus. Well, you know, that sounds like, wow, real spiritual. Trouble is, it's not. Because if you're into Jesus, you're going to want to know everything about Jesus. It happens to be found in the Apostles' Doctrine. And the word doctrine in the Greek Bible is didache, which means instruction or teaching. Okay, think how foolish that sounds then. I'm not into instruction. I'm not into learning. I'm just into Jesus. Hmm. I think Jesus said, learn of me. It's ignorance, not learning of Scripture, that is dangerous. 
Jesus said, you err not knowing the scriptures to the Pharisees, nor the power of God. And if you don't know the scriptures, you'll never know the power of God. The early church were devoted to it. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant, or newer translations, be ready, you know, like a minute man, you're always ready to go. Be instant in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's what we're called to do, preach the word, not politics, not morality, not what makes you feel good this week or that week. Not my opinion, but to preach the word. It was such a priority to the early church in the book of Acts that in the sixth chapter of Acts, when there was a dispute and there was a need that came up, the apostles said, okay, we understand there's a need. Yes, we need to meet the need. You do it. You find people to meet the need. We'll sanction it and say God bless them and let them go over the business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the study of the word what a blessed fellowship they had to have apostles that set those priorities. They were well fed. Verse 4. We're making good time. A third mark of Christian fellowship is hope. Hope. Verse 4. Notice toward the end, we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Look at verse 12. In him the Gentiles shall hope. It says in that verse, verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you. Authentic Christians are filled with hope. What is the hope he's speaking about? It says the God of all hope, the Gentiles shall hope. Here's the Bible. Everything written in the Bible is for our example that we can have hope. What kind of hope is it exactly? Let me give you a few possibilities and I think I'll sew it all together for you. It could be the hope that we get when we read the Old Testament scriptures of how God put up with his people and how loving God was to the children of Israel who bad-mouthed him and complained in the wilderness and were sent into captivity. And while they were in captivity, God sent a prophet and said to them, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, not of evil but thoughts of peace to give you a future and a hope. We say, boy, that brings hope to me. God sure was patient with them. So as I read the Bible, I could generate hope from reading Old Testament stories. It makes me very, very hopeful. Second, it could mean hope in the future. Hope in the future. That is, as I read the Bible, as I look at the Old Testament, and now for us, reading through the New Testament, I understand something that people in the world don't understand, that history isn't haphazard. History is going somewhere. History has a culminating goal, and that's called the blessed hope of the coming again of Jesus Christ to redeem ultimately his church. And I tell you what, when I think of Jesus coming back, I get very hopeful. Come election time, I don't. But I get very hopeful when I know that there's coming a day when it won't be Republican or Democrat, but it'll be theocratic rule. And God rules over the earth. And that future brings hope. Third possibility of the hope he refers to, and this is what I see it as, is in the context. It's the hope produced 
by our patience toward the weaker brother in the fellowship. The hope produced by our patience of the weaker brother in the fellowship. In other words, when I live to please others like the weaker brother, there's a payoff to it. Just like Jesus didn't please himself, lived to please his father, lived to procure salvation for the world, and that's a big payoff. He bought a lot, a chunk of people into the kingdom. And so there's a payoff when we don't live to please ourselves, but please others. And the hope is the unity in the church, that the church will be unified together. It's a very hopeful thought. It's the hope of unity. So if a weaker brother is divisive, the strong brother will be cohesive. Overlook petty stuff and say, hey, let's get together on the important stuff. Fourth mark of Christian fellowship, harmony. Hey, I said there'd be five. We're already at number four. We're doing great. Fourth mark of Christian fellowship is harmony. Verse five. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may be one mind and one, with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of patience. Isn't that a great title for God? My God is the God of all patience. The word means endurance. Here's a full translation of that word. To bear up under, to persevere under difficult circumstances, to have unswerving constancy, the steady determination to go on. He's the God of all that. I, it doesn't seem to make you happy. That seems to make me really happy. God puts up, a, he has to put a, up a lot in my life with a lot of stuff. And he's the God of all patience the God of all endurance, all of my weaknesses, all of my sin, all of my faltering, all of my mistakes, all the times I open my big mouth and I've hurt someone, all the times I could go on. He's the God of all patience. That's beautiful, beautiful thought. So often we are hard-headed, and I'm glad that we have a God who is so soft-hearted toward his children. You know, I've often thought that the angels in heaven must look down upon us. And, and they watch us. And the Bible says we're going to judge angels one day. And we're going to help rule in God's theocratic kingdom. And I don't think they're too excited about that. And I think they look down sometime and they shake their head and think, what's up with this guy? He's like a bonehead. But he's got the God of all patience. Grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ that you may with one mind and with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord. Do you know that your Lord Jesus Christ prayed for that? He prayed for harmony in John 17 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. I and you and you and me and, and us in them that the world may know that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for harmony, unity. Now, 
Harmony doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we're all going to agree on every issue and see eye to eye. Please don't think that. It's, it's ab absolutely idealistic, and it's impossible. There's no way you're going to get a group of Christians agreeing on every little thing. It's impossible. Write it out of your mind is impossible. If you get two people that agree on absolutely everything, one of them is not thinking. And you could go all the way back to the 4th century and get Augustine of Hippo and to the 10th century and get Bernard of Clairvaux and 19th century, get Spurgeon and 20th century. You could get uh, Billy Graham and you could go back to the Reformer time and get John Calvin, etc. Put them all together in a room and they will not all agree on every issue. Believe me. But there will be unity. When it comes to the essentials, the core of historic Christianity, there will be a consensus. And so, when he says here about harmony, we should have the same mind and the same mouth. It means that over the essential issues, and I'm not going to repeat what that means because we've, I think we, we, we've run it pretty hard in past studies here in Romans. We agree and speak the same thing over the essentials of the Christian faith and, and get this, we speak the same thing over the non-essentials in the sense that we say they're not essential. Okay, you believe Saturday, I believe Sunday, you like to eat meat, I don't like to eat meat, whatever. We're still brothers in Christ. Those things are non-essential. And I will put up with you and I will love you no matter what position you hold on these secondary issues. That's harmony. It says, be like-minded toward one another. I've told you before about... Uh, a visitor that went to a mental institution and uh, he noticed something he had never seen before. There was one guard watching a hundred inmates and the visitor said, aren't you afraid these guys are going to get their heads together and attack you and escape? And the guard very calmly said, they're in this institution for the very reason that they can't get their heads together and work cooperatively together. There's a lesson in that. To proclaim or to say that we preach the gospel without harmony, unity, is insanity. It's insanity. We have to speak the same mind of who Jesus is, that he is deity, that there's salvation by Christ alone, etc., the essentials of the Christian faith. And then it comes to all these other gray issues. Okay, great. You believe this, I believe that. I got my convictions. I love you anyway. We can discuss. We can debate. But we won't divide over them. We'll agree that they're non-essentials. Why? Because that's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that barriers are broken down. Barriers are broken down. Verse 6. Notice that the greatest form of harmony is in glorifying God. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that, that goes back to our introduction goes all the way back to the purpose of the church and the purpose of you individually. Uh, let me boil it down in absolutely, I hope, so it's impossible to understand. You have one clear purpose on earth. Now, I, I think that you want to find out what that is. Because I think everybody wants to know that. Why am I here? What's the big, you know, the big questions of life? Where am I going? What's the purpose of life? Here it is. I'm about to give it to you. The purpose for your existence on planet Earth 
is to bring glory to God. Period. That's it. You say, well, I don't like that. Tough. I mean, really, it is tough. Because that is the truth. And to the extent that you do that, you're going to be happy. But if, on, the, on the other hand, if you say, oh, I don't want to please God. I want to please me. I want to be happy. Pursuit of happiness. You'll never be there. You'll never get it. Happiness is the most elusive thing in the world. But if you say, I'll die to myself, I'll deny myself, I'll seek God and I'll please God, you will become a happy individual. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you. The purpose of life is to glorify God. He said, do you have scripture to back that up? Of course, Revelation chapter 4. The 24 elders gathered around the throne. That's the epic of all redemptive humanity in heaven. And they say, for you created everything, and it is for your pleasure that they exist and that they were created. For God's good pleasure, because he's God. He's sovereign, not the customer. God. And that's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins by asking the question, what is the chief end of man? And it quickly answers it by saying, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is a fact that many, even Christians, overlook. The earth is not a cosmic playpen to discover whatever you feel like is cool and good and fun. You're put here to find out how you fit into God's eternal economy and purpose of glorifying him and getting others to do so. That's it. To the extent that you do that, you'll be a really wonderfully happy person. That's the chief end of man. By the way, that was Jesus' whole pursuit in life. Once again, we come back to Jesus. What would Jesus do? That's what Jesus would do. John 17, he mentioned it several times. The word doxadzo in the Greek, glory or glorify. Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I have glorified you on the earth. His main purpose. Fifth mark, and we close with this. Fifth mark of Christian fellowship that is authentic is it is inclusive. Inclusive. Be careful what your mind does with that word. That's why I like to explain it as we close. Fifth mark of Christian fellowship is it is inclusive. Let Paul explain it. Verse 7. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Christ Jesus has become a servant to the circumcision for truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God. Now, the church of Jesus Christ, Christians. If I say the church, people get, they have baggage sometimes in their minds. Well, so, Christianity. Christians are, in one sense, exclusive. In another sense, we read here, inclusive. Let me explain. We are exclusive, and the Christian church is exclusive in the sense that only the redeemed are a part of it. Only the redeemed are a part of it. Only those who have acknowledged who Jesus is 
have repented of their sin and turned their life over to him, and they live for him, that's being born again, only those are included in it. That's the true fellowship of the church. Now, Christians are accused, at least I've been accused, of being exclusive. And it's an accurate accusation. I'm very exclusive if I preach the New Testament gospel. If I say, as the Bible does, there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except for Jesus Christ, that's very exclusive. Christians are accused of being narrow-minded. Right again. Jesus said, narrow is the way. Few find it. And so when people say you're narrow-minded, I, I, it's a compliment, actually. I, my mind is narrow. You're closed-minded. Absolutely. Jesus Christ shut my mind. I at one time was open. I was open to everything, and people love to pour their junk inside my open brain. I've come to Jesus Christ. I found the truth. He found me. I know the truth, and the truth has set me free. He's closed my mind. You're brainwashed. Yes, he washed my brain, and he washed my soul. Now, Jesus said, narrow is the way. Few enter therein. Anybody can go to heaven, but few do. Few will go that narrow gate. Allah will say, forget this. I'm not doing that. I don't agree with that. Okay, that's where we're exclusive. The church is also inclusive, however in the sense that we've just read. That no matter what social background, ethnic background, educational background, what language, what country you're from, doesn't matter. God's love is available to absolutely everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever would believe, that's, that's the responsible part, would not perish but have everlasting life. Therefore, verse 7, receive one another just as Christ received us. If you're weak, if you're strong, what's your background, it doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, you're inclusive. In fact, you receive each other. A strong word in the Greek, proslambano, to receive. It means to, to receive to yourself with careful attention and concern. You're carefully concerned. You include them as much as you can in your circle to grow them up, if it's all po at all possible. When Aquila and Priscilla, in Acts 18, heard Apollo speak, and remember he didn't speak the whole gospel, he left out the resurrection part, big part. It says that they took him aside, proslambano, special concern to themselves, and taught him the way of the scriptures more accurately. The point here is that we are to do what Jesus did in a greater and more infinite sense. If Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, would receive Jew, Gentile, someone from northern New Mexico, from the coast of California, from the east coast, from Sudan, anyone who would call on his name, regardless of their background, and bring them together and make them a part of their spiritual family, we ought to do that too. We ought to do that too. Verse 8. Now I say that Christ Jesus has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written 
and I've already read the text, he's quoting four Old Testament texts to prove his point. That Jesus was born a Jew, yes. He was there to fulfill the law as a Jew, yes. But that Gentiles, non-Jewish people outside of the covenant, anybody in the world could become part of the spiritual family. To prove his point, he mentions four texts in the Old Testament. Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and Isaiah chapter 11. In all of those passages, it is predicted that Gentiles will become part of God's spiritual family, which is fulfilled in the New Testament ideal of the church. Gentiles are mentioned. Now, why is that important? Because if you're familiar with Acts chapter 15, there was a group in the church in Jerusalem who said, oh no, only if you're Jewish can you even be saved. You have to be Jewish to be saved or at least proselytize to Judaism and be circumcised and keep the law of Moses or there's no hope. Paul's saying, no, it's not true. Verse 13, we'll close with it. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice those words that mark the Christian. Hope, joy, peace. How do you get this joy and peace? It says in believing. You know what that word believe means? It means to not acknowledge in your brain that God exists, but with your life to lean completely on him. You embrace him as your Lord and Savior. It's a very strong word that means to adhere to, to rely on completely. When you believe like that, you have what is promised here. Joy. Inner sense of well-being. Peace. That was a heart cry of my generation. Give peace a chance. It's on bumper stickers now. Visualize world peace. I look at the faces of everyone that has that bumper sticker. See if it's working. And I remember what my Savior said, and your Savior said, peace I give to you, not like the world gives. His peace in believing. And if you believe, then you're all together with the rest of us in this thing called the body of Christ, the church. We're all imperfect. Some of us are strong, some of us are weak. You can become strong, but stronger believers, the only way they'll do it is your help. You've got to put up with them. The God of all patience. I tell you what, God has put up with a lot in my life. My wife has too, but I tell you, God has done it longer. He's so patient, and God's patient with you. And tonight, though, this has been a Bible study for the church, for true believers in Christ, of things that ought to mark us. A lot of times on Wednesday nights, somebody will invite a friend from work, a relative, somebody who has an interest in eternal things, perhaps, or they're just curious, or maybe even has a religious background. They've gone to church all their lives. But there hasn't been something authentic. There hasn't been a born-again experience you say, well, is that important? Jesus said, unless you are born again, you'll never get to heaven. I think that's pretty important. 
I think that's the important thing, don't you?